It was Gandhi who said, When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it, always. I want to use this podcast to look at what's created the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment in the world and how we can respond to it. Although I've called it we need to talk about Putin, I'm not exclusively going to talk about Putin. Over the last few weeks, I've mentioned the situation in Ukraine in some of the messages that I've given at the Aspen Chapel. And these messages are available as individual podcasts. I wanted to do one podcast specifically about the war. What's the root of it? What is driving Putin and other world leaders? How do we respond? Where do we start? Well, believe it or not, the world is getting better. Steven Pinker, the evolutionary psychologist in The Better Angels of Our Nature, finds evidence in the declining rates of violent deaths per 100,000 of the population. He says that this comes from eliminating various customs and the way that we live with each other. These changes arose from the rise of modern states, commerce, greater gender equality, cosmopolitanism and reason, despite the short-term setbacks of individual wars. And we can see improvements in terms of the increasing sensitivity in rising global consciousness, the gradual abolition of slavery, the recognition of patriarchy, the development of human rights. They're all signs that consciousness is evolving in a more loving way. However, you only have to look at our home, this planet, and you can see evidence of schisms that are all over the place. You can see it in the rise of global organised crime, the polarisation of views in politics, culture and religion, the rise of dictatorships, the relativization of truth, states and rulers blatantly lying and behaving in a way that just wouldn't be tolerated in an individual. You can see it in the hardening of national boundaries leading to war in increases of economic disparity, leading to grinding poverty and the refugee crisis that's all over the world. There's inequality in healthcare, indifference to the effects of climate change and the impending global emergency, and the insistence on me and mine being the defining attitude towards local, regional and national priorities. The planet's home to all of us, and there seems to be something wrong when our home is in such chaos. And to me, the reason is that so much of the world is acting out of the misapprehension that they have to fight for what they can get in order to survive. In his farewell address, President Eisenhower said, In the councils of government, we must guard ourselves against the acquisition of unwanted influence whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defence 
with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. That warning to the world's largely gone unheeded and has led to a place where our defence budgets are so vital in shoring up the economies all over the world. We create arms not only to fight, but so we can eat. All of which comes from the misapprehension that there's not enough in the world. There is enough. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the world produces more than one and a half times enough food to feed everyone on the planet. That's already enough to feed 10 billion people, the world's 2050 projected population peak. So why do we do it? Why do we think we have to fight to survive? I think it comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of reality. Most people believe that as individuals, as communities and nations, we're separate from each other. This is a perspective that's generated from our minds, the rational mind. In all of humanity, the rational mind has built into its DNA a survival response that makes the individual believe that it's separate from its surroundings and therefore must compete with its surroundings in order to survive. The individual human being is therefore programmed to compete on the individual level, on the level of family and friends. I want me and mine to have the best. On the level of race and ethnicity, on the level of local community, and even on the level of nation states. We identify with me and mine in order to band together against all the others. We even include the planet in that. The planet's seen as something that we can get things from. We're separate from it. Therefore, me and mine are more important than it. This idea of separateness, however, is wrong on almost every level. It's not just seeing things in a misplaced way. It's wrong. That word wrong comes from the old English rang, uh, which means awry or unjust. It's wrong on the level of the individual because individuals are not separate from each other. They all come from the same primal consciousness that's been nurturing life since the Big Bang. When you're born, you inherit a share of that consciousness. It's there before you are born and you emerge into it at birth. Yes, you have a rational mind that interprets that consciousness, but that's all it does. It develops ideas and opinions about that consciousness. And one of the ideas it develops for survival is that it's separate. It's not. I look out from the same consciousness that you look out from. We're all just looking out from a different perspective. That's what the whole history of spirituality teaches us, that consciousness is one, and that all that's material emerges from that consciousness. That in fact, consciousness is the driver of evolution. I'm really not going to argue about that now. It's been the basis of reality that many spiritual masters have been exploring for the last millennia. But as a reality, it makes the concept of separateness wrong, awry and unjust. This leads to the way we behave to others. The guru was once asked, how should we look after others? To which the guru replied, 
there are no others. Once you embrace the concept that you're not separate from others, then the growth and well-being of others becomes our own growth and well-being. It's no longer me and mine. It becomes about us and ours. Knowing this, we can see how all politicians are actually making decisions from this false perspective of separateness. That the whole idea of separate nations is actually built on a false perspective. Fighting for me and mine against so-called others is not just a bad idea, it's awry and unjust. But to take this out of the metaphysical realm, we all also know that all of us are completely interdependent on each other, like a tree that's interdependent from its surroundings. Here's a bit from Sogol Rinpoche's book, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. He says, Nothing has any inherent existence of its own when you really look at it. Think of a tree. When you think of a tree, you tend to think of a distinctly defined object. And on a certain level, it is. But when you look more closely at the tree, you'll see that ultimately it has no independent existence. When you contemplate it, you'll find that it dissolves into an extremely subtle net of relationship that stretches across the universe. The rain that falls on the leaves, the wind that sways it, the soil that nourishes and sustains it, all the seasons and the weather, moonlight, starlight, sunlight, they all form part of the tree. And as you begin to think about the tree more and more, you'll discover that everything in the universe helps to make the tree what it is that it can't at any moment be isolated from anything else, and that at every moment its nature is subtly changing. As with the tree, we also are interdependent on each other, dependent on plants, on animals, on the weather, on nature, on the planet. And to say differently is awry and unjust. It's wrong. China's problems are our problems. Our problems are China's problems. And if you disagree with that, just look at the pandemic. For countries to be worrying about territorial claims, security, economic prosperity, pride and empire is also awry and unjust. It's wrong. And the leaders of these countries are wrong because their rationale is wrong. They are fundamentally interdependent with everyone and everything else. And that includes the planet. When we start thinking this way, then we will be able to solve the problems of the world. While we start thinking of our own survival, we will not. We are all part of this evolution of consciousness. And our role is to bring some sanity, from the Latin word sanus meaning health, to bring health to the unhealthy thinking that drives world leaders and those who support them. Only then will we be able to experience our planet as the loving home that it is. It's a lovely quote from the Dalai Lama who says, consider yourself a tourist. Think of the world as it's seen from space, so small and insignificant, yet so beautiful. Could there really be anything to be gained from harming others during our stay here? I think the feeling that's most prevalent at the moment is fear. We can all feel it around the situation in Ukraine. Last week, my 
daughter, who's 16, asked me whether or not there would be a third world war. There's talk of nuclear weapons. And all of us are thinking about what might happen next. Fear, from the German origin Feuer, meaning calamity or danger. We know it when we have it. It's a crawling feeling in the stomach, dread, anticipation of what might happen. We feel it with a diagnosis, with the possibility of something awful happening. And it really is a desire to survive. The mind uses fear to drive us into acting. However, those actions that we take may not necessarily be in our best interests. Fear is our mind telling us to be careful. Fear is warning danger, and when it comes, it makes us act. Our mind becomes focused on fear. And really, all we want to do is to look at ways to get rid of it. It then develops entire mental constructs and activity plans to ensure that fear is allayed. At the moment, much of the world is driven by fear. There is fear in Putin's heart at losing his place in the world, both personally and in terms of Russia. There is fear in the Ukraine of being overrun. There is fear in the refugees. There is fear in the countries surrounding Ukraine as to whether or not they will be next. There is fear in the leaders of other countries that they will not be up to the task of dealing with this danger and of them losing their position. There is fear in all of us that this might get out of control and, and then where would we be? Fear is obviously not a good driver when it comes to organising world affairs. It galvanises us, but the danger is that it drives us all to the lowest level of activity, which is naked survival. It's difficult for creative and loving actions to come from this fear. Yes, you can see the compassion of those helping refugees, but with fear as such a powerful driver, anything could happen. On the ground in Ukraine, you can see the courage of the local people, their courage, their heartage. And that courage is something that actually can transform fear. It leads to action that confronts the causes of fear. But for many of us, fear can become overwhelming. I'm sure Putin's fear is overwhelming, as is the fear of the refugees and many of those involved. When your life's at stake, it takes a big jump to leap over that fear and come to a place that's positive and creative. And you can see that in the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. He has everything at stake, and yet he manages to communicate in a way that has gone beyond fear. We can't affect directly what's going on in Ukraine, but we can be responsible for our own fear. And the first step is to recognise it when we feel it. We can't do anything about it when we're unconscious of it or just ignore it. It then runs us like gas runs an engine. We just end up on automatic. But when we acknowledge fear, we can do something about it. And doing something about it is not just trying to get rid of it. Our focus, as I said, is often just trying to get rid of that fear. And so much of our activity is taken up by that that there's no room for anything else to come through. But once you acknowledge it and see it, then you can decide what to do next. Vladimir Zelensky will be having fear, but he's used it courageously 
and he's inspiring his nation. And we have to do the same when we have fear. We have to recognize it and welcome it and then decide what to do, not just try and get rid of it, but look for an appropriate action. Viktor Frankl had a lovely quote. He said that between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And with that in mind, we can acknowledge the fear, even welcome it when we feel it, not pushing away, but holding it like holding a small shaking rabbit. You stroke the fear, but you don't change your behavior immediately. You wait for that space and then you look out and you decide what to do. In my experience, this is the moment when wisdom appears. We can often then see a way of acting that's not driven by fear because that wisdom comes from a different place. Fear becomes the gateway into action, into wisdom that would otherwise have been hidden. If you see fear as this gateway to wisdom, then you're willing to have it. And that wisdom comes because even though you feel the fear, you're not attached to what's going to happen next. Most of the time, our fear is about what might happen to us. What will happen if I lose my health, my money, my children, my house? We try to control our lives to avoid the outcomes that we don't want. The way to peace is not to be concerned about the outcome, to look at the circumstances that we're in and not to try and survive, but to look at what the most loving act would be. It enabled Vladimir Zelensky to say when he was offered a way out, for him and his family by President Biden, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And it will enable us to have compassion for those who come to us for help, to respond in a loving way rather than in a way that will be driven by our fear. Fear is there for a reason, it gives us energy and drive. What we do with that energy and drive is up to us. Right now we need to be calming the fears of those around us, not exacerbating them. We need to be the adults in the room when people ask us if there's going to be a third world war or if nuclear weapons are on the agenda. We can't affect those scenarios, but we can affect those who are around us. And you never know what effect that might have, ripples in a pond and stuff like that. So we connect to something within us and that something within us does give us an experience of peace. But there's another feeling that also comes up in relationship to the current situation, and that's helplessness. We look on in horror at the situation. We see it on television. It seems there's nothing we can do except watch and wring our hands. I want to suggest that when we are in fear, one of the ways we can move on is to serve others, and that's an appropriate reaction to that feeling of helplessness. Quite often, fear leaves us like a deer in the headlights. We just don't move, and that exacerbates our sense of helplessness. However, if we see service as a way through, then we can immediately look at where we can serve, and that does give us a way to act. It takes us out of the glare of the headlights and into action. You can see it in a way that Ukrainians are volunteering and doing anything to help. They're not just cowering in their bunkers, they're fighting, working in hospitals, serving food, looking after refugees. Everyone's galvanized and that actually takes away the fear 
that all of them must be feeling. When we accept our fear and hold it, then that wisdom comes through and that wisdom helps us. It gives us insight into what we can do to help. And it doesn't really matter what you do when you serve, because I think our lives are like a work of art. And the very act of living that work of art from a place of love is making its own contribution. Whatever you're doing, if you're expressing love from a place of humility in service to the world, then you're changing the environment around you. You're expressing something that's healing, giving and life enhancing. And the universe is better off for that, no matter what you're doing. And, you know, it could be anything. Meditation is an act of service to the universe. Anything that you decide is offered out of love is an act of service. And that act of service, whatever it is, will take you through that experience of helplessness. You'll be doing something to contribute and that will move you out of those headlights in the road to a place of safety. You will also experience making a contribution. It may be related to the situation we're in in the world and it may not. The key thing is making the contribution. That in itself will take you to another place. Too often our attention is just on ourselves and the people directly around us. The moment you go into service, you have the humility to put your attention outside your immediate interests. Service is, in fact, the end point of spirituality. The reason we meditate, the reason we do all the spiritual stuff is to find our place of service. And if you feel that you've not yet found that place of service, then it's back to the meditation cushion. And if you feel you're enlightened and you're not being drawn into service, then it's back to the meditation cushion because it's your ego that thinks you're enlightened rather than your real connection with the essence of things. And so I think we seek to make a connection with that which is within us that will enable us to understand our place in the world and therefore our place of service. Right now, most of us can feel the fear as we look into the world. We have to hold that fear, allow it to be there, to look past it. And in that space, choose our response. That's where our wisdom will be. And if you can't think of anything, then offer that nothing that comes in meditation and prayer. The experience of knowing nothing, willing nothing and wanting nothing. That's the meditative experience. And that is something we can offer, our prayer and our meditation. But it might be something more specific. It might be helping a neighbour who needs a bit of help, or a charity we're connected with. We all have a role to play in our community. What you do matters. How you behave, how you treat others, how you serve, the example you set. All of us need to be conscious of that in this time of uncertainty. Just the way you conduct yourself is a way of serving others. It sets an example. It shows others what you think is important, and it makes a contribution on a very deep level. There's that lovely old story of the starfish. There's an old man who had a habit of early morning walks on the beach, and one day after a storm he saw a human figure in the distance moving like a dancer. As he came closer, he saw that it was a young woman, and she was not dancing, but she was reaching down in the sand and picking up a starfish and very gently throwing it back into the ocean. Young lady, he said, why are you throwing starfish into the ocean? The sun's up, she said, and the tide's going out, and if I don't throw them in, they'll die. But young lady, don't you realise that there are miles and miles of beach and starfish all along it? 
You can't possibly make a difference. The young woman listened politely, paused, and then bent down and picked up another starfish and threw it into the sea, past the breaking waves. Doing this, she said, well, it made a difference to that one. We have to be the same in our acts of service. We may feel none of this is making a difference to the pictures that we see on television, but we are making a difference, one person at a time, and that's all we can do in our lives. I think each of us has a completely unique relationship with life. That connection between our inner and our outer world, each of us, it's unique. It's a unique connection for each of us. No one has the same connection. Each of us lives different lives in different ways with different relationships to the universe. Our connection is unique and the universe therefore serves us in a unique way. It brings us individually problems to solve, unique circumstances to overcome, unique people to deal with. And by being open to the inner and the outer world at the same time, it also brings us unique ways of being. And so the service that we give is a unique service that only we can give. It may not be up to us to fight or conduct shuttle diplomacy or serve refugees in Poland. Our role might just be doing some shopping for a neighbour or volunteering at the local hospice or being a smiling face to the checkout clerk at the grocery store. Only your wisdom will tell you what's right for you. But that service is the proper reaction to your fear and your helplessness. It'll help others and it'll also help you. We don't know the way the world's going, but we do know the way that our world is going. We know the people who live in our world. We know what they need. We know what we can give. So now's the time to see how we can change the world that's directly in front of us. It's the case of the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, taking this world as it is and not as I would have it. That's the only way that we can act. And the key word is wisdom, the wisdom to know the difference. Service is the way of dealing with helplessness. And we just have to have the wisdom to discern where to serve. To truly serve, we need to have the humility to have empathy for those around us and not just blame others for the way that we feel. Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you plant a lettuce, if it doesn't grow well, you don't blame the lettuce. You look for the reasons it's not doing well. It may need fertilizer or more water, or less sun. You never blame the lettuce. Yet, if we have problems with our friends or family, we blame the other person often. But if we know how to take care of them, they will grow well, like the lettuce. Blaming has no positive effect at all, nor does trying to persuade using reason and argument. This is my experience, says Thich Nhat Hanh. No blame, no reasoning, no argument, just understanding. If you understand and you show you understand, you can love and the situation will change. That's what's needed in the world at the moment. And if we can't act this out on the world stage, then we can do it in our world, one starfish at the time. It'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end.